Welcome to the ESG Academy, where the Hogan Lovells team quickly but thoroughly shares critical insights on key ESG issues that in-house counsel need to know. Today's episode is about the ESG implications for investigations, including anti-bribery, corruption and ethics issues, brought to you by Liam Nadu, a partner from our London office, and Anne Kim, a partner in Los Angeles. In addition to both being partners in our investigations, white collar and fraud practices, Liam is the co-head of our business and human rights practice, and Anne is a former federal prosecutor and SEC Enforcement Division Senior Counsel. So here's Liam and Anne explaining why getting your ABC and ethics right is so critical to a company's ESG strategy. Hi, Liam. It's great to be here with you and be a part of Hogan Lovells' continuing series of ESG-related discussions. Hi, Anne. It's great to be here too, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to our discussion. So our colleagues have already addressed various ESG issues and topics, but you and I are here today to discuss the interplay between anti-bribery and corruption and ESG. Well, look... I- ABC, anti-bribery and corruption, and ESG, they're intrinsically linked issues. I mean, corruption in its own right is an ESG issue. Not only does corruption give rise to ethical and reputational concerns for companies and governments, but our well-known anti-corruption techniques involve fundamental corporate governance strategies that are applicable elsewhere to other areas of ESG. And as investigations lawyers and enforcement lawyers, we're well familiar with the concept of compliance mitigations. um, And we know how important policies and procedures are in preventing unethical and illegal behaviour. But corruption arises out of other ESG issues as well. Um, And the well-known NGOs, Global Witness and Transparency International um, published a report in April last year um, that argued that corruption itself causes adverse human rights and environmental uh, impacts. For example, because corruption is used to circumvent environmental and human rights obligations. But corruption is also an obstacle to effective protection of human rights and environmental rights. Uh, and corruption in disease such as Transparency International's Corruption uh, Perceptions Index the most recent of which was published the other day, shows a strong correlation between states with high levels of corruption and states with widespread human rights abuses. Um, And this is certainly uh, what governments and supranational authorities are looking at uh, and how they're looking at these issues. Uh, The UN has identified corruption as one of the biggest impediments to achieving its sustainable development goals. Um, and, And certainly... That's how things are being looked at on this side of the Atlantic. And I'm curious uh, the extent to which um, the new Biden administration is treating these issues and, and looking at these issues together. So it's interesting you bring this up because the correlation you just mentioned was highlighted by the Biden administration this past December when it issued its first ever U.S. strategy on countering corruption. Um, there, the administration acknowledged the long-term corrosive impacts of, that corruption has on governance and human rights standards. And as more focus is placed on ESG issues, we should expect the U.S. government to spend more resources on combating corruption that impacts ESG. One of the issues you and I considered in our article about ESG and ABC is how this interconnectedness is increasingly being recognized by investors and stakeholders. We see that robust ABC policies and procedures are a prerequisite 
for any company wishing to focus on ESG because so often they are the starting points of risk mitigation. Thanks, Alan. I mean, look, I know that you were former senior counsel uh, with the SEC. Uh, Do you think that enforcement agencies like the SEC are looking at ESGs more fervently? Do you think that all the buzz in public discourse and the interest that corporations are taking in ESG is being matched in the offices and the hallways of Uh, our prosecutors and and regulators. So there's been a marked increase in focus on ESG from regulators, but also rapidly growing interest from other key stakeholders, including clients, public lenders, and investors. On the regulator side, in March of 2021, the United States Securities and Exchange Commission created a climate and ESG task force whose mandate is to develop initiatives to proactively identify ESG-related misconduct. The head of that task force indicated that its focus in 2022 would be on detecting and bringing enforcement actions for greenwashing. It appears that the SEC has begun targeting and scrutinizing these disclosures to root out misleading statements and fraud. And we can expect the SEC to pursue cases against issuers related to their own ESG disclosures. Companies are now also being ranked based on their ESG performance and human rights risks. So Liam, I know you're uh, very much focused on business and human rights issues as well as anti-corruption. Do you think that corporate liability for human rights violations will start to track anti-corruption legislation? Uh, yes, I do. Uh, and certainly, uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, there's a strong interconnectedness between corruption and human rights abuses. At the moment, corruption is the subject of hard law and it's been the focus of legislators for some time. And most OECD regimes make it a crime for corporates to um, not only bribe on their own behalf, but also they criminalise corporates for the acts of their employees, agents and subsidiaries. And these regimes tend to have extensive extraterritorial application. Some regimes go even further. So, for example, the UK Bribery Act, where even non-UK companies can be criminally liable for failing to prevent uh, corruption by their business partners. And I think there's a strong sense um, that this type of legislation is going to be mirrored in the way that corporate failures to prevent human rights abuses uh, will be treated. In my view, the direction of travel appears to be for future human rights laws to be framed and operate in the same way as existing uh, anti-bribery laws. Prosecutors are using existing criminal law to target companies' complicity in human rights abuses. For example, anti-terrorism legislation, through money laundering legislation, uh, and also through well-established crimes of universal jurisdiction like torture. And uh, as recently as the autumn, both the French Supreme Court, but also the Swedish courts um, have confirmed uh, that either by way of sentencing of companies or approving indictments, that companies can be liable for human rights abuses that took place uh, overseas. One similar trend is the way that the courts are being used by civil parties to bring 
civil claims against companies for alleged human rights and environmental abuses overseas. And we see that as a trend in the UK, uh, but also in continental Europe. And um, there's a whole line of case law in, in England that's caused a raft of claims being brought by classes of claimants. And I think that's a trend that we're watching very closely. And I'm, I was wondering whether that's something that we're seeing in the US. I'm, I'm, I'm aware of the alien tort statute, but I was just wondering where the direction of travel is on your side of the pond, Anne. So, Liam, it's not in the same way as the UK and continental Europe are are dealing with these issues. In June of 2021, the United States Supreme Court ruled that corporations could not be held liable under the Alien Tort Statute for actions that were alleged to have aided and abetted in child slavery outside of the U.S. That court found that financing decisions made by the corporation in the United States that were related to overseas operations weren't sufficiently related to the alleged wrongdoing. And so those financing decisions were mere corporate, general corporate activity. So the alien tort statute does not apply extraterritorially and uh, plaintiffs must show that the conduct relevant to the statute's focus occurred in the U.S. in order for it to apply. So not the same direction that you're seeing on your end of the pond. Interesting. In fact, divergent. Uh, And I think that probably creates a bit of a headache for our clients. I think you're right. Absolutely. So, Liam, European jurisdictions are being more prescriptive about human rights due diligence. What trends are you seeing? Well, any company that signs up to the UNGPs commits to performing human rights due diligence on supply chain and business partners. And what we're seeing now is hard law, various laws, legal proposal, legal campaigns coalescing around creation of a mandatory duty to conduct due diligence. And many of the big corporates are supporting that idea. But um, smaller companies are doing what they want because there isn't a hard duty to conduct uh, human rights and environmental due diligence. Most notably, France in 2016 brought in their duty of vigilance law and that established a legally binding obligation for parent companies to identify risks, prevent adverse severe human rights violations, as well as health and safety and environmental impacts. And that law is really seen as the most stringent in Europe. But we are seeing signs that other jurisdictions in the region are bringing in similar types of legislation, perhaps more focused on on specifically due diligence. We're seeing that in Switzerland, in Germany, in Finland, Norway. But the big question is what on earth the European Commission are doing about this. Uh, They set out their stool last year and had a consultation about a new directive on human rights and environmental due diligence. And there was a big response to that. And they published some guidance about how that legislation is going to develop. But we're waiting for that legislation to be published. And there is some concern in the community that this has just dropped off the European Commission's agenda. So we're looking out closely for that. But it would be a big development. It is unclear how the requirement will be framed, but it is certainly likely to take the form of a mandatory duty to conduct due diligence. And I think that type of duty, no matter how it's framed, is going to cause a big headache for compliance teams of of big corporations who are operating in the European Union. So that's the type of trend we're seeing, Anne. We're seeing a growing sense of um, creation of a mandatory duty to conduct due diligence and how that interacts with existing compliance due diligence, for example, 
from an ABC perspective or a sanctions perspective is going to create a big headache uh, for all, for compliance teams. And I'm interested to know how this is being dealt with in the US and whether we're seeing also a trend towards mandatory due diligence. So I would say overall, the US is less advanced when it comes to human rights due diligence and reporting and, and mandatory uh, reporting in that space. However, my home state of California signed into law in 2010, the California Transparency and Supply Chains Act. It was the first of its kind law that addressed efforts to eradicate slavery and human trafficking from the supply chains. The law required every large retailer and manufacturer doing business in California with annual worldwide gross receipts that exceeded 100 million US dollars to disclose their efforts to eradicate slavery and human trafficking within their supply chains. While this act has been in effect since 2012, there's been very little enforcement of this law. So with that said, you know, given California is the only state that has a such a law on its books overall on the federal side in the US. There's been several proposed bills that would require publicly listed companies to conduct human rights due diligence or make disclosures regarding the measures the companies have taken to identify and address human rights abuses. But those measures have failed to gain traction and been slow to progress or fail to get a vote before Congress. So there's a lot of work to be done here in the US in this space. So, Anne, taking everything on board that we've just discussed, there's, a, there's certainly a sense that compliance teams are, are going to be stretched with additional obligations and concerns and corporates have got additional headaches arising out of new human rights laws and possibility of civil and criminal claims. What can companies and compliance teams do to mitigate these risks? You know, I think that human rights and environmental risks require companies to reframe their approach to risk assessment. The traditional compliance interpretation of risk assessment is always or traditionally concerned with potential risks that the company faces. But the assessment of human rights and environmental risks requires companies to focus their analysis on the impact on the people, the environment, and wider society. This is potentially far wider in scope and requires broader engagement, including with external parties, and making a risk-based approach even more important. The current approach taken by businesses, which utilizes a structure in which compliance functions are often siloed, with some teams responsible for anti-corruption and others focusing on sustainability, corporate social responsibility, or human rights um, being separate. And these silos need to be broken down and the companies should be using holistic approaches in risk assessment so that they take a look at their total overall program, know what each is doing, and schedule and set up a program that takes all of these different factors into account. So, Liam, any final tips for our audience in navigating the ESG space? Well, and I endorse everything that you've just said about what compliance teams uh, can do and how companies should approach these issues. I think my one tip is think about leveraging your existing procedures and infrastructure to address human rights and ESG risks. For example, many companies have very sophisticated systems dealing with onboarding and conducting due diligence on third parties. Why not use those systems when you're thinking about addressing the ESG risks that your third parties pose for you? Similarly, look at your existing whistleblowing tools and see how staff can be trained to use those 
whistleblowing lines to raise ESG concerns and to avoid a situation where your employees are going to external parties to whistleblow and train your compliance teams to identify where ESG risks are arising out of a whistleblowing complaint. So my tip is use your existing structures and bolster them and make sure that you're not operating in silos and in vacuums, that everything is pulled together. Great, Liam. Those are excellent tips. This was a great discussion. I'm so happy that we got to do this together. Yeah, great. And I really enjoyed the discussion and uh, I look forward to monitoring these developments with you. And I also really enjoyed writing the article together with you for the Global Bribery and Corruption Outlook. Thanks so much to Liam and Anne for today's discussion. Visit hoganlovells.com forward slash ESG for more podcasts, videos and resources or download more episodes from the Apple Podcast app or the Google Podcast app for Android users.